Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. That's the island greeting. Okay, ready? Make sure to cut out Cal singing. Joined today by very famous author, Hampton Sides. Oh, Listen, wow. I don't, Hanson, I don't want to reduce your, I mean, you've written a lot of books, man, but I want to say this, Blood and Thunder is a hell of a damn book. Agreed. God, uh, that's a good book. Well, thank you. Keep I talking. I just reread talking. The, I reread the whole, I was going to like refresh. <laughs> I was looking through like what I had downloaded on my phone from way ago. I was like, oh, and then I was like, man, I want to get, I want to see if we can get that guy on the podcast. And then I was like, yeah, I reread from start to finish. It is such a good book. But I mean, you know what? You probably hate talking about it because you wrote a long, you've written so much stuff since then. Uh, no, authors never get tired of talking about their books. Uh, you know, it's like a little kid, one of my kids. I love talking about my kids. Uh-huh. Uh, and especially that one because it's really about my chosen home. I chose to live in the West. I chose to live in New Mexico. And I, I wrote that book to try to understand how Santa Fe and New Mexico and, and the Southwest got to be what it is and uh, what an education it was for me, you know, just uh, to, le- to learn all this stuff and to follow, you know, the, it's not a biography of Kit Carson, but it uses this guy, Kit Carson, as the kind of connective tissue to get mm-hmm. you through all of this history of, of how the American West and a single generation became uh, became part of the United States. Um, all the the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. 
Yeah. Um, Dude was like, yeah, Kit Carson was like Forrest Gump, man. <laughs> he was there for everything, it seems like. It's just amazing. Uh, yeah, we're, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into bunt, your, your kind of whole uh, body work, what you're doing now, which I got to tell you a story. Please do. Well, uh, you've taken an interest in Captain Cook. Yes. Cal and I, Cal, how many times did we go past where we were trolling for Wahoo in Hawaii? I mean, we must have drove past where he supposedly died 10 times. Oh, mm-hmm. at least, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. On the big island. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We spearfished out in front of there. I, I got the kayak like, out there one time. Oh, you did? Yeah. They're like, right around that corner, supposedly yeah. Captain Cook died. And that, and that brought us into like speculating. You know, like one of those situations where no one really knows what they're talking about? We were all talking about what exactly his situation was. Right. As if, you know, time <laughs> long, long ago when the internet didn't exist, we were yeah. having one of those conversations. And then later we, we, we all, I, I think, I, I assume, I know I did, we all went to bed and typed into Google, Captain Cook. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, a lot of people, damn, man, a that lot, guy. A lot of people think maybe it's Captain, Captain Hook, <laughs> uh, the pirate, uh, or maybe Captain, you know, Captain... Uh, Kirk from, you know, Star Trek. Sure, yeah. Uh, it gets mixed up with a lot of other captains. Uh, and some people think he was fictionalized, you know. There's always Captain Crunch, you know. No, no, favorite. that guy. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but he was real. He's the guy he, that cuts the inside of your mouth up every time you eat his cereal. <laughs> especially <laughs> with sword cuts in the inside of your mouth. Especially with the Crunch Berries. Yeah. Do you remember Crunch Berries? <laughs> yeah, I do, for sure. Car- carcinogenic cereal for, bre- for you know, for kids. Um Car- yeah, yeah, I do think that uh, Cook is one of those legendary mythic guys that a lot of people confuse with uh, caricatures of of him. Like, it, it, where's the real? You know, you have to dig through all the layers to get down to the actual guy who was actually more interesting than all those caricatures. Yeah, um, but also very controversial, especially now. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of these guys are. You know, pedis- they're, they're, they're com- the statues are coming down and they're being yanked from from the history books and, uh, you know, because they they're part of an era of colonialism that mm-hmm. uh, that is under, you know, under attack right now. Uh, understandably so from folks like from Hawaii. Native Hawaiians really hate Cook. Sure, he's, man. He's sort of the beginning of the end of, of that era, um, even though he was primarily just an explorer. He was he was not a. He was not an occupier. He was not a, you know, he didn't lead an army. He, he, he was genuinely a great navigator and explorer, but he was the beginning. He was the beginning of modernity coming to their shores and uh, changing everything. Yeah, and he kind of paid the price for it in his own day. <laughs> well, that's what a large part of the book is going to be about is, is, is all the events that lead up to that, you know, he's murdered and uh, he... You know, a lot of people say he deserved it karmically or something like that. Yeah. How many how many encounters with how many Polynesian people did he have before finally, you know, violence escalated. There was a lot of miscues, missignals, and, uh, you know, a hatchet ended up between his shoulder blades. Yeah. A hatchet that he had given them. Uh, oh. So note to self, don't give people a hatchet uh, that if you don't know them really well, because um, it might... Why, you, he might, he might get returned to you. He might get returned in, in a way you don't like. Okay, we're going to get into, uh, get into all that stuff and in other books as well, um, including uh, Arctic exploration, some other things. We've got to cover off on a couple things. Oh, you know what I was just saying? You know what I'm talking about, like, taking statues down? Listen, man, I'm telling you what. I had, a, like, a prophecy the other day. 
if any of us gets a statue erected about them, okay, in a hundred years, they will rip that son of a bitch down. <laughs> It'll be like they were flying in airplanes. They were burning fossil fuels. They knew what they were doing. And people would be like, but everybody was burning fossil fuels back then. And they'd be like, they all knew. Mm-hmm. And they will tear your statue down and throw it in the ocean. Yep. And everything you've done that you think is great and everything you've done that you think is good and worthwhile, no one will care about. They'll, they'll reduce you to that one singular fact that you contributed. To the destruction of the planet. Or, yeah. And I know. don't care how nice you were, what kind of dad you were, the way in which you knew that it was wrong. But that's what you'll become. That supersedes everything else. That's what you'll become, and they will tear it down. Mm-hmm. And people will be like, maybe we should put it in a museum. Think of what your statue in an ocean can contribute, though. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, that's some habitat right there. Yeah, no, that's good. You should yeah. have a statue with a lot of fish-sized holes in it. Yeah, exactly. So Start, throw yeah. it off into there. <laughs> maybe put a bunch of coral polyps on there. And... Yeah, dude, my statue's already doomed. Uh, real quick. Oh, uh, Brody, we got to talk about youth deer opener. Montana has... Every like every state does now. It's, it's the I think it's the greatest thing in the world. Our state has a youth deer season. Yeah, special opener before the real opener. I if I didn't have kids, I would be against youth deer season. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say you'd go find a kid to go hunt with. No, I would have been like <laughs> like yeah like you know most people on earth like when I was in uh, eighth or ninth grade, I had Al Young civics class. And Al Young taught civics through the lens of him. He, he role-played. We didn't know he was role-playing, but now looking back, he was clearly joking. But he taught civics as him. Um, he would go like, I am concerned only with what affects Al Young," And he would like teach civics through the lens of an extremely selfish person. Like he would, he would be like, I don't, I hope that you people in this room never register to vote because why would I dilute my vote? Yeah. So if you're, if you're not a parent, you'd be like, to hell yeah. with that youth season. Yeah, so I would have, if I didn't have kids, I would Cal. be like anti-youth season. I bet Cal's anti-youth season. Are you, Cal? Oh, all the shit I pay for your kid, <laughs> like the taxes in Gallatin Valley, my God. I mean. Did they just suck up by going to that free school? Every yeah. person in this valley should stop me and say, hey, thank you so much <laughs> for not breeding, but paying for my offspring. Yeah. So there you go. Sentiments like that. Yep. Uh. But my God, do I like youth deer season. Oh, it's fun, man. So what happened with youth deer season, uh, it's this beautiful little system where, like, normally kids go take hunter safety when they're 12. Like, when I was a kid, you could start bow hunting at 12. You couldn't rifle hunt until you were 14. You could take hunter safety at 12. What this does is there's a system by which, if you're like, how do they describe it? You got to be, like, within arm's reach of them. Yeah, I, there, there's wording in there. You can't just wander off no, and you're, you're their put men- them under a tree. Yeah, you're their mentor. Um, they can get a regular deer license. They have to be with their mentor. It can be a parent, but a parent can also appoint a mentor who has to be 21. I'm not sure if it's 18 or 21. 21, licensed, legal standing, all that. Yep. And then the kid can hunt and it's a two day, it's two day season. Yeah. Without taking also in Montana. They can do it for two years without taking hunter safety. And that's not just kids. That's anyone, right? Yep. Yeah. I'm staring at my hunters, my Montana hunters ed certification right now. Uh, October 4, 1994 is when uh, I went went through the program here in the state. Really? I did 86. 
Uh, and Brody's boy got his first deer. Yep. First. Brody said he almost teared up. How do you know when you're almost tearing up? I felt it coming. I felt it coming. Did you choke it back? I choked it back. Really? You yeah. didn't want it to come? Yeah. Yep. It was emotional though, man. It was, you know, because we put our time in on that. It's a short season, but we did a day of scouting, day of hunting, day of hunting and killed one, you know, midday, second day when we thought it was all over. And my boy spotted the deer when, oh. I, when I thought it was all over. Buck gave us a slip and then we slipped in on him. So it was fun. Yeah. And what what was the scene? You were driving down the road, talking on your phone, and your kids tapping oh, yeah. on the window. All about that. No, man, we were hiking around some public land that's only accessible by, you know, hiking or boat or however you want to get in there. But you can't drive in there. Um, yeah, it was it was a great. No, time. we had a little camp set up. Yeah, I had my daughter who's not old enough. She was there. No, it's great, man. She's a hiker. Yeah, she's a hiking machine. Yeah, yeah. Is she in, into the hiking part of the uh adventure that's what she likes most but not real what what was her connection to the hunting part she kind of um she very much likes to go likes to hike around but isn't that concerned with what we're doing uh whereas your it, boy it just, is like yeah. very concerned. he's only there he's there for the shooting single-minded <laughs> yeah he's yeah. there for the shooting <laughs> He's there to be success. He's there for the success. Like he's there. He's enduring everything that leads up to the successful part. If he didn't enjoy it as much as he did, I'd just call him a trigger man. <laughs> he's a trigger. He's a trigger man. He's like there to be successful. He he wants that that he's happy to skip ahead to that moment. My daughter, on the other hand, is there for the experience to the point where we could be out halibut fishing. Um and be really like fighting the halibut and getting the harpoon ready, you know? And I'll look and she's looking off the other direction and isn't totally aware that we're in the middle of catching one, you know? And my boy be like, give me the rod, give me the rod. <laughs> Just like way different. Yeah, she loves it though. She hiking, picked, hiking machine. She picked up a bunch of antlers. Yeah, she had seven sheds she found. Yeah. Hiking fool, man. That's she loves awesome. it. She loves that. it. Big old blisters on the back of her feet from wearing her brother's <laughs> boots. Are they were She's they all tough. interested in uh cutting it open and loves that? Oh that yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's actually, you know, after my boy shot it, his buck, he was he said to me, I'm I feel happy and sad at the same time. I Aww. don't know what to do. But then once like that stuff all kinds of goes away when he it's doesn't mind. Evolved. Yeah. But once the the butchering starts, he's like it's he's dead, like, Okay, now I yeah, yeah. 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 My daughter likes to do the, likes to cut the stomach open. Mm-hmm. But I told her, you know, that's interesting on fish, but on deer, it's like, it's just grass. Yeah, but maybe she wants to look around. No, and, no, yeah, I, yeah, no, right? no, knock yourself out. But I'm like, you're not going to find like a duck in there or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> well, she, yeah, you know, she likes to cutting up. She likes all that. Oh, she's great, man. Um, and she's excited to turn, but she's got another two years because okay. she can't do it till she's 10. Okay. No, she's going to be, listen, with her hiking and endurance, um, she could turn into just a stone cold killer because <laughs> that's the hard part. Yeah. You know, that's the hard part. Uh, oh, this is interesting. You know, like, here's a Pete, like, I hesitate to even do PETA news <laughs> because PETA makes news, their formula, like people for ethical treatment of animals, like their formula is to do something that the coverage will wind up being like, what will they do next? It's like a it's like a PR formula. Yep. You do something so kind of like, what? Huh? 
that it gets media attention. And then here we are you're talking about it. You feel like in. you're contributing. We're getting yeah. baited <laughs> in by their like, what? Come again? So the new thing is that... But it's that, a special occasion, though, because oh, no. we're in the middle of the World Series. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we have uh, a good friend who's in MLB, not in the, you know, much to his chagrin, not in the participating in the World Series right now. But so Pete's new thing, they're like, hey, why well, everybody's thinking about the World Series? Here's something to try on. They believe that the <laughs> that it's time to retire the word, the word bullpen. Because makes you think of a bull all penned up. I thought of the fact if I was if I was in charge of PETA and someone's like, hey man, what uh should be our gripe with baseball? I would probably be like, Well, the gloves are made of leather, the, the balls. balls made of leather, everybody's shoes are made of leather. Let's go after the leather. Those guys probably consume a lot of protein. But no, they're like, I got it, man. We're gonna hit them where it counts. In use of the term bullpen. <laughs> uh, Pete Alonzo, Mets first baseman, and uh, two times, he's the only guy, uh, he's been on the show. He's been the only guy to hit, uh, to win the old uh, home run derby twice. Pete says he likes to call it the bullpen. Um, well, first, let me tell you what Pete's, PETA says about it. There's, see, it's confusing because we got Pete and PETA. So you got to enunciate. I was going to say, this would have been a good Halloween costume idea. Pete Alonzo. We got oh, Tristan. Oh, wow, Phil. Oh, you don't even. This guy, listen, this guy is very good at sub-sentence shit. Dumb wordplay is another word way to play, play. Yeah, dumb wordplay is another way to so play. So you like a baseball player wearing like Birkenstocks. You got like a hemp like purse or something. Peter Alonzo. Oh, got a baseball bat. Dude, Phil is so good at shit like that. Yeah. Peter says that words matter and baseball bullpens devalue. Oh, they're kind of playing. They're playing to the strength of the ball players. To begin again, quote, words matter. And baseball bullpens devalue talented players and mock the misery of sensitive animals. PETA encourages Major League Baseball coaches, announcers, players, and fans to change up their language and embrace the term arm barn (laughs) instead. Which seems kind of like upsetting. a bunch of severed arms in a barn. Like, I don't, like it's just a, a disturbing image. Here's what Pete Alonzo says. He says they should keep calling it the bullpen. How I see it is when a new guy comes in, he's fresh me anyways. He's there to smash that pitcher's earned run average, and that's how he views him as fresh meat. So he likes calling it the bullpen. Moving on. <laughs> That's a Cal term. <laughs> oh, Corinne, tell us about your uh, all your wild adve- all your wild food adventures when you went to Aruba. Oh yeah, did you guys sing that song a lot? Aruba, nah. Oh, Jamaica. Terrible. No, we didn't. But take it away, Steve. No, no, no that's about all I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I went to Aruba for a for vacation, but then kind of did it a little bit the meat eater way. Went fishing. And there are quite a number of things that I learned about. Um, on one of the days that I went fishing, caught a, a couple of different species, but one was a pretty small parrotfish. And uh, when it came, uh, when we reeled it in, the uh, the guide said that it was a protected species. And so we returned it, and an opportunistic uh, seagull, God, those... He was on it. Whew, 
God, they were just psh, that that poor little fish just could not get down fast enough. Did so, you get the feeling that the seagull was like on your situation? Yeah, like he's like these people will produce food if I stay yeah, if I fly around here. Like there were times where there were no birds around the boat, and then all of a sudden there'd kind of be like a flock hanging out, and we tried to put the fish. Return it to a, to a spot where, yeah, exactly. We try to do it surreptitiously, <laughs> but this one was just, just went in there and grabbed it. Um, but, you know, we, we, we hope to get it back into the water safely. But um, anyway, so. You killed a lot of fish. We, we killed a couple. We killed a couple of fish. Um, but I was looking at its, uh, its mouth and it is like a little, it's like a. It's like someone who just had their braces taken off and it's got like really straight, mm-hmm. a really straight top and bottom row of these just, yeah, yeah. they're not like little sharp teeth. It's just kind of like a, it's like almost a, like he's got like, like, a like you almost, tooth, yeah. like a retainer. Yeah. Um, That's a good way of putting it. And, and uh, it hurts when they bite you. Th- thankfully, I did not experience that. Um, but I would imagine because they use that little beak type mouth teeth situation to they eat algae and they eat algae off rocks and coral uh and then they they, they poop out sand yeah if you they, watch yep, them when you're underwater spearfishing you'll just see it coming off them so they they sand make our beaches excrement. yeah yeah so I, I found that fascinating um when uh kimmy werner when we mm-hmm. were we were spearfishing for parrotfish kimmy werner one of her strategies is when she dives down she takes a rock and scrapes the rock on the coral uh-huh. to mimic the sound of feeding parrotfish. Oh. So she goes down and she's like, and does it that like the rhythm they use yeah, when they're yeah, doing yeah. that to to try to like replicate the sound of a feeding one. Oh, that's like fish calling. Yeah, to put them at yeah to put them at ease. How clever! Yeah, that's really or she'll smart. take two rocks and put them in her hands and just rub them together like that. Did you that, eat them? When you got oh when, yeah, yeah they're very are popular they, like they're they like a, they're like a high grade fish in Hawaii oh nice and often they're protected and people say they're protected because they make sand but mm-hmm. the, they're protected because they're like there are other they're reasons a, they're a favorite of the scuba diving world yes they're that like too yeah. big mm-hmm. bright right. beautiful at times pretty easy to kill mm-hmm. and so it's one of those ones that in some areas it's just even like in places where it's like in Mexico. You can, but it was explained to me in a lot of areas. It's like, yeah, you can, but we kind of don't. Okay, yeah. Because they're so popular mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with divers. Okay, yeah. These big blue crazy yeah, ass beautiful. fish, you know. Yeah. And um, people like you can shoot them; they're good to eat, but we generally don't because they're, yeah, they they're they hold a lot of value as a mm-hmm. as a yep. fish to behold. Yeah. You know, and they they do have like that sexual transition too, right? So they're all female. Oh, really? And they're hermaphroditic. And oh. switch over to male, and there's a worry of like the har- how the harvest is going to impact that dynamic. Oh, that's interesting hmm. for for breeding. That. Is that um, a does which that is happen? another argument? Like in these places where where it is a really good food fish. I mean, we ate several. Yeah, <laughs> They're yeah. really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and then you you have a lot of interest, right? Land of many uses type of situation where you got divers and. Fishermen and, and people that just want to eat. So, and then the, they're her, when they they're hermaphrodites and when they turn their their coloration, I can't remember what way it goes. Can you explain it? I think the blues are the males. 
is does that happen at a certain stage? Because the one I caught was pretty small. I think the big and... dogs are when they turn to a female, or is it the other way around? <sighs> We're gonna have to look at that. Cal's going to look it up on the internet. Yeah, I did get a, a really good opportunity to, we were talking dinosaurs with my buddy's kid the other day, and uh, he was explaining to me how the females, T-Rexes, are always uh, smaller than the male T-Rexes. And I said, you know, that's called sexual dimorphism. dimorphism. And he was like, anyway, <laughs> T-Rex. <laughs> Oh, man, do we got to, you should bring that kid down. We got a guy coming up that that kid would be extremely uh-huh. interested in. Oh, yeah. yes. I don't want to say yeah, who. Yeah, yeah. Bring that kid down. Let him sit in the lazy boy back there. I'll I'll, I'll let his dad know. He'd love How old to is do he? That. He is like probably in between your two oldest boys. Hmm. Yeah, he takes a seat lazy age. boy. Uh, while he's looking that up, Corinne, talk about the little, the little gonads you were eating. Oh, yeah. Um... So the other thing I did was I, the first day uh, of snorkeling, I spotted a number of sea urchin around. So then uh, before I wanted to make sure that I was allowed to attempt to harvest one or two, found out that it was not an issue. And um, I harvested one white sea urchin and one black sea urchin. I was told that the white ones you could pick up without being stung, but... I was kind of just very nervous about, I was out there by myself, so I didn't want to misstep. So I was like, I used my scuba fin and I used like a mesh bag to try to figure out how to get it without really touching it. So that was successful for these two uh, critters. And I was very excited to try to replicate like a a great restaurant experience with these like plump mm-hmm. You know, pieces of uni. Uh, unfortunately, that was not what happened. Um, uni is gonad, so the row. Uh, Hold on a minute, no. It's a gonad? It is a gonad. Well, a gonad's not a row. Like a gonad, how's that not a testicle? You know about this, Angie? You ever write a book about this? I do not. <laughs> <laughs> this is esoteric stuff. <laughs> We're getting pretty deep. <laughs> so, Okay. This is from Science Daily. The genital gland of a sea urchin, the so-called gonad, is found inside the urchin. The organ stores nutrients and contains milt and roe during the spawning season. Oh, okay. And you can eat both males and females. Um, And I, you know, I didn't know what season we were in for spawning and not. And I know that there are a couple of, after reading, I found out there are a couple of uh, uh, factors that would influence how plump the row would be. So uh, my my little urchins had just kind of a tiny bit of slime in there, not particularly orange, not particularly plump. I Was it tasty? No, nah, really. I kind of I you know, I you you there's a lot of uh gooey guts stuff inside the urchin. You kind of wash that out. And the gonads are um, kind of right at the back of the inside of the shell. And you can kind of scrape those out with your fingers. It's mm-hmm. pretty easy to do that. And I just had like a little a little yellow film. Hmm. Um, not particularly good. So I was 
disappointed, but the the experience was was fun anyway, and just kind of cutting them open and seeing their parts and yeah. bits and yeah. So you can try again next time you're in the right area at the yeah, right time. Absolutely. No. Oh yeah. Oh, up yeah. at our up at my fish shack, those commercial guys come through in the winter. Oh really? Yeah. And they're even up. Even oh up yeah, there. no, no, huh. they do. Yeah, they come through every winter for the cucumbers and the urchins. Okay, for urchin row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I would try again any day. I I love finding things like that. How's it coming, Cal? Should we just move on? Or are you going to report? Oh, I'm I'm going to report. So yeah, blue blues are male, according. There's there's all sorts of parrotfish, as you know. Yeah. Uh, but the ones that we were hunting specifically, um, Hawaii considers them. The blue is male, and the uh, males kind of tend to a harem of females, and when the big blue male is shot, as per our discussion, uh, the alpha female then transitions to a male. Wow. That is wild. It's, uh, I, I think she's just addressing a need. Huh. Cow man, yeah, wow, and so that's so interesting, you know. When I was diving down in California, uh, we talked a lot about sheephead down there, mm-hmm. and uh, that is a species that's like highly targeted for like the the restaurant aquarium side of things. Yeah, um, and the argument down there is because they they um, reproduce in the same way a male tends a an area develops a, a harem of females or congregates a harem of females. And then uh, when the male is, is caught or killed or removed from the scenario, a female then transitions to male. Well, um, that population, they've seen it reduce in average size. Like the average size of the take is getting smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. because the... Um, the population is is forcing smaller fish to turn male. I'm with you. And I think that's a, a big part of the argument here because I know on the big island of Hawaii, uh, you can take male parrotfish, but on Maui, you are not allowed any male parrotfish take. Huh. Oh. Can't, huh. can't kill the blue ones. Because huh. they don't want you prematurely triggering younger ones into oh, their sexual transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think would be the biological argument. That's good stuff. Speaking of sheep's head fish, I just looked up a picture of that. That is gnarly. There's a gajillion sheep yeah, head, but for versions. Yeah. Good uh, teeth on those. Oh yeah. The one I pulled up has like its teeth, teeth look human and then it's just like got these rows of flat like cud chewing molar looking things. Wow. Cal, hit us with this deal. Uh, you're checked out on this Pablo Escobar deal? Yeah. Yeah. The, this recent development is new, but I, I feel very comfortable with the folks at the table. We can cover it just fine. So uh, drug kingpin Pablo Escobar got into hippos and released hippos. Those hippos make a uh, in um, narcos. Oh, they oh, make yeah. an appearance? The hippos have like a, what do you call it? Like a cameo. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice. His, his hippos are in narcos, yeah. They're big, big stars. Um, so there was a, a point in the world, uh, a point in time rather, where, where people had the idea of transporting wildlife all over the place. Um, 
you know, you can probably get more eccentric than a big drug kingpin, but they do what they want. And, and this guy, Pablo, (laughs) uh, got some hippos in as probably like an oddity. And then there was, there's all these stories about like also for defense, you know, nobody can come in through his hippo defense, whatever. (laughs) So, um, from an ecological standpoint, we know that they are, they, they, consume a niche where they're, um, they're deforesters. Yeah. They really, they're, they're a huge animal and they reconstruct waterways and, and yeah, the world, I was surprised to see it's the world's largest invasive species, which makes sense to me. What, like a couple thousand pounds. Oh yeah. Over 2000 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and they're, they're very dangerous. They're very territorial, all, all the things. Um, interesting side note, this, this was actually proposed in the state of Louisiana to bring hippos in as a, a possible commercial enterprise. Um, for meat production. For meat production. Uh, um, you can fast forward to see how well Louisiana did with Nutria. I'm glad, we're probably glad they started small. Um, <laughs> like, if this works. <laughs> then we go to hippos. Uh, so the interesting thing is uh, somebody here in the U.S. decided to get ahead of the hippo curve and have has somehow won some court case to bestow upon hippos um, some some human rights. Mm-hmm. And this has absolutely nothing to do with the very catchy headline of uh, cocaine hippos, as they're often called. Um, but it is interesting to say, like, here is this species that if, something were to happen with one in the US, it would be protected under an extra level of protection, somewhat human, you could say. Hmm. And- But there's, it, it's not doing anything to protect the hippos in Colombia because it's an American- Correct, right. yeah. Yeah. Again, it's just like borrowing the headline, but you could see this as like a, an animal rights type of win. Right. And- um Depending on, on if you want to take sides, I hate saying that we have to take sides, but it's like, is this a win for animals or uh, is it? I'm leaning more towards the barn arm thing with this one. No, man. <laughs> See, home. this dude, real quick, this dude is, they're talking about culling the hippos. In Colombia. In yes. Colombia. Yes. So some dude inspired by that threat tried to make a, is trying to make a thing in the U.S., but a legal analyst is saying that you can do all you want in the U.S. It has no, like, enforcement. Correct. Yep. So it's like, it's just doing it for fun. Yes, but then, It's like like crusading against the bullpen. It's like you're just doing, you're just throwing stuff out there. And then, you know, let's say we have a situation where all of a sudden somebody managed to get a bunch of Louisiana hippos started way off and some parish. And then all of a sudden now you have the legal precedent. You have this legal thing hanging out there as like, you know, kids and their P rogues get sucked under by yeah. territorial hippos. Right. And it's like, well, those hippos have rights. Well, now's the time to get a hippo thing going down there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you worry about their long-term deal, uh, Brody real quick, uh, dig into this, um, Dig into this 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 kind of crazy journey by this gray wolf, and then we're going to get into our esteemed author here. Sure, I, I feel like these wolf take a long walk stories are getting a little passe, but this one, dude, listen, man, no, they're not. 
Well, I mean, I like just... any story about any animal that goes a long ways for mysterious reasons. I f- th- this one's is interesting because of where it ended up. Um, a gray wolf named OR93 from Oregon uh, took a 1,000 mile southward journey from northern Oregon to southern California. 1,000 miles. Mm-hmm. Crossed, it, ne- it never gets old to me. Crossed uh, two major highways, 99 and the 5. Um, southernmost sighting of the species in the Golden State in nearly a century. And as is typical, it's a two-year-old male that broke off of its Wolf River pack and decided to go for a long walk. Covering 16 miles a day. Yep. Before his collar failed. Yep. You, know, you know what biologists call it when they got something with a collar? They call it keeping it on air. They're like, we kept that thing on air for yeah, five years or whatever. I like that. Um, Traveled through 16 counties. Yep. There's he's, a great quote in the end where he, he uh, now they're wondering if the wolf is in Ventura County, right? Yep. Yep. Near Santa Barbara. There's a quote. Where's that? Oh, there's a quote from a guy who says, um, it's very rural. It's not like he's at the beach <laughs> with a whole bunch of people or anything like that. <laughs> Stealing potato <laughs> chips from someone's like towel off the beach. That's from, uh, 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 uh. That's what uh, from a spokesperson from Cal- California Department of Fish and Game. Um, that was his quote. It's not like he's at the beach with a whole bunch of people or anything like that. But when I read this one, you know how there's a certain uh, certain uh, segment of people who are both anti-wolf and anti-left-wing uh, city people. They're like, well, we should turn those wolves loose in Boulder, Colorado. No, oh, yeah. Well, this one's just, you know, he's there. <laughs> so you got your dream now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, there's a wolf in Santa Barbara. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, I was we speak- might be there now. I yep. was speaking with a, a family that runs a, a mixed like goat sheep operation to knock down, um, you know, like nasty. They do like thinning operations around California primarily to um, get rid of. Uh, fuel buildup, fire fuel buildup, mm-hmm. and some noxious weed control and stuff. But so they run a ton of ton of boar goats and a, and a ton of um, a type of hair sheep that I can't remember what it is. But um, we were talking about um, predators and the way the state of California uh, runs their their predator stuff. And, and according to uh, these folks at Star Creek Land Stewards, um, they do participate on like a, a wolf board in the state of California Um to talk about like how we are going to manage wolves. Like, so California is like being progressive in the, in the fact that they are going to have wolves in their near future. Mm-hmm. Well, they have an established pack there already. I yeah. Think. It was Shasta. Yeah. No. What, did uh, they, what did they do with this wolf? Did they, did they bring no, it back to Oregon? I think they're, he's good to go wherever he wants, as long as he doesn't get in trouble killing a cow or something, I would assume. Yeah. And, and this guy, he was, he made a bunch of head, headlines last year. Um, but then went like off radar, right? Yeah, and yeah. They lost back. the signal, and he just turned up. Um, he's probably a dead end. I mean, unless he he either comes back, he could but he's probably to... a dead end because he's got to run into a female, right? That's the weird thing about when when you, when you see these large predators that take off. You know, it's it's so often like juvenile males. Yep. Yep. And so I, I see what they're going for. He's like, you know, he's going to find like the Shangri La, but. You want to go in is you're like a you're like a um, genetic dead end. Yeah, because you're just yeah. not going to turn up. What he's doing makes sense. He's just not going to find what he's looking for. Right. You know? The the Shangri La in this situation would be 
uh, and unattended females. Yeah. Ladies no. and no competition. But Cal, going back to what you were saying, like, I don't, I don't ever see California getting to the point where Montana, Wyoming, Idaho is no. with wolves. Like no matter how many they have. No, they'll never cut a wolf season in California. Holy shit, man. People would have a heart attack. Oh yeah, man. Can you imagine? But you know, California does a lot of culling of predators. Because they big, don't, yeah. big private landowners. Because they don't have enough bear hunters or lots of agriculture. To yeah. Get it done. Yeah, they, they yeah, they like the they like to let the government do it and not not paying sportsmen. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety a high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break-in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili, who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots, talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable. 
and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacoba store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hampton, remind everybody what your books are. I got them right here if you can't remember. Uh, well, I can remember them. Um, although I wish, you know, they take me a long time to do. They take me like five years to, to actually get them done. So Damn. Um, they're, they're not as many as I would like. Um, yeah, but they all count, man. Uh, so Ghost Soldiers, which is about the Bataan Death March in World War II and the Philippines and uh, the prison war camps there. Um, and a rescue that took place late in the war to rescue the, the the last survivors of the death march um that was my first book my first history and uh, uh um uh moved on from there to blood and thunder which you mentioned or we mentioned earlier uh which is about the opening of the american west uh in the 1840s 50s and 60s uh and sort of follows loosely the the life of kit carson this controversial frontiersman who did a little bit of everything and was kind of like as you say the kind of a Forrest Gump of the American West, um, pinged and ponged off of every <laughs> every historical event and um, was everywhere. And, yeah, you'd be like, know, mountain man, yeah. check. Cattle man, <laughs> check. Sheep man, check. Yeah. <laughs> Rancher, general, <laughs> scout, courier. Indian agent. <laughs> check. Uh, and, and of course, in, in, in his last kind of act of his career, he d- – uh, did the roundup and the uh, of the Navajo people, the the Diné, and uh, that's what he's known for now. Um, not the, all those other things that he did, but uh, after that, I wrote a book called um, uh, "Hellhound on His Trail," which is about the assassination of Martin Luther King in Memphis, which is where I grew up, born and raised in Memphis, and always kind of wanted to deconstruct and try to understand this seismic event in my city's history. And uh, I decided that James Earl Ray was, in fact, the killer, and it ends up being a psychological profile of of him and how the FBI finally caught him um, after one of the la- largest manhunts in American history. Where was he from? He's from Southern Illinois. Okay. He was kind of a redneck, uh, came from came from just terrible, terrible poverty. Um, lots of, I mean, I don't know how much time we have to go into him, but he he was a piece of work, a real piece of work. Uh, and I, the book follows him in the the months just prior to the assassination when mm-hmm. he, he begins to kind of stalk King and he moves to Atlanta and he um, is trying to find his moment uh, where he can, uh, you know, he buys a rifle, he buys a scope, buys the ammunition, buys, buy, you know, buys uh, binoculars uh, and and literally stalks him, uh, you know, hunts him. Um, uh, so after that book, uh, that's when I moved to this Arctic story. It's called um, In the Kingdom of ice, and it's about um, the first American, the first official American uh, attempt on the North Pole. Uh, it's a story that almost no one's heard of. Uh, the, the USS Jeanette, which uh, uh, happened in 1879, eight, uh, 1880, 1881, they went up through the Bering Strait 
of Alaska and I got stuck in the ice. <laughs> it drifted in the ice for two years until the ship was crushed by the, um, by the ice pack. And these men, 33 men and 40 dogs and three small boats out on the ice pack, a thousand miles from the nearest landmass, which is the central coast of Siberia. And it's it's really a story about how they made it home. Some made it home, some didn't. Uh, but it's I'm it's only almost, halfway through the book, Hampton. Yeah. So you're really <laughs> okay. I won't tell you're you. Really killing me. No spoiler alert. <laughs> Except that you know, you, I think you can tell that it's not going to go well for everyone, <laughs> including the dogs. I'm, a, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, the dogs. <laughs> Throwing uh, it sorry. away. Peter. Peter probably won't. You know, doesn't like my book. Uh, that well, they, they, book. they won't have a problem with the book. They'll have a problem with those people. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. That, uh, that that's one of the what I'm appreciating the most is just how. I haven't heard any, any of this, mm-hmm. like, and, um, how, how much of a story it was in its day yeah. and, and to it's not, just to not be known to now. not have not even a, a anything. Mm, that's why I wrote yeah, it. That's, that's why I wrote it. Yeah. I was like, why haven't I heard of this? Why haven't we all heard yeah. of this? This is the American Shackleton story. You know, it's like greatest, one of the greatest survival stories of all time. I, I truly believe. And yet, um, I had never heard of it uh, until I, you know, just kind of found out about it by chance. Um, and it was in its day the story that everybody knew these guys. Everybody followed their fate and wanted to know what was going to happen to them. And, uh, you know, it was like we had sent men to the moon uh, uh, and or the dark side of the moon, really, uh, because they were gone for three years and no news from these guys. God, um, man. Um, so it's a, you know, it's, it's a classic uh Survival story, a um, little bit of scurvy, you know, a little bit of cannibalism. Okay, no, there's not actually cannibalism. Um, but uh, these seems like these Arctic stories always have that kind of that kind of ethos. So there's cannibalism, scurvy, oh, mutiny. That's the other one. Oh yeah, uh, good times. Um, uh, so, but, my but favorite... also football. Like, I, I, <laughs> yeah, they. Play. It's a very regimented. <laughs> Okay, like uh, oh, like that to keep them all active. Yeah, the ca- the captain's got a very regimented uh, daily routine, and and the the um, executive officer, and it involves you know like mentally and physically keeping people engaged because it's it's like us in this room are in a space not all that much bigger than this room for two years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We would, you, yeah, the, Cal's he, dog is laying here, and we'd probably wind up eating it. Yeah. With, uh, um, I mean, how much of the year is darkness? Too? Uh, about half of it. So, and and there's this one guy uh, who is his name is Collins, and he is a wordplay guy. Um, you know, kind of kind of like you. Uh, <laughs> oh, he, he's one of the, to fill there. You know, he he's a he's a punster, and and he does limericks, and he's this jolly guy that you know you know we all know people like that, and they're wonderful to be with for about you know an hour. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, well, no, see, that, that but, checks out. Yeah. See, but Phil hasn't gone into limericks yet. Yeah. Okay. If okay. he were to go into limericks, he might be that looking be for the, a job. Yeah. yeah. Be noted. He'd be like, but imagine, uh, so one hour would be enough for most of these guys, but they were with this dude for two years and they all wanted to wring his neck. I mean, they wanted to kill him. Um, they really did. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the book is a study of, of how people survive um, close proximity and 
claustrophobia and darkness for half the year and Arctic conditions. And, and one of the things they do is, uh, apart from playing football out on the ice, is um, they do a lot of hunting. Um, and they hunt polar bear and walrus and seal, um, and they get to be pretty good at it. And that's one of the reasons they don't get scurvy, as they're constantly eating fresh food. Uh, and and uh, greens that they find you know, around the edges of the Arctic. So it's a it's you know it, it's it's a cooking and hunting uh, book <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> kind of fits in with what you guys talk about. Um, and uh, they finally get to open water after a thousand miles on the ice, and they put in their boats and uh, they start sailing for Siberia. Uh, and they encounter a gale the next day, a very bad storm, and the three boats are scattered from each other. And uh, the story becomes, you know, f really just follows these three boats as they make their way towards uh, a, a river delta, the, La the Lena Delta, which is uh, one of the hugest deltas on Earth. Uh, and it's a labyrinth of thousands of islands and, you know, switchbacks and uh, cul-de-sacs, and uh, it's a, it's it's where the story, the rest of the story takes place. I won't tell you anything. It's more. like a psychological false summit story <laughs> where you're like, as soon as I get on top, and you're like, oh, it keep keeps going. Yeah, yeah, the misery just keeps. It's like misery porn. You know, it just keeps going. <laughs> hey, you know, when you were mentioning there's certain, uh, I don't want to call them tropes, but certain things that Arctic exploration stories involve, like you're always like looking ahead to the cannibalism part, <laughs> the mutiny part. There's also um, the encounters with Eskimo or Inuit hunters mm -hmm. who, and you wind up with this like really stark juxtaposition because here's these people who are thriving. They're like raising children and they show up and it's often they, they don't want to get too close. It's kind of like, what are these people doing here? And you see like these two just like vastly different ways that people sort of comprehend the Arctic landscape and can live on the Arctic landscape. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the thing that's killing all you people. Meanwhile, there are individuals who are raising children here. By choice. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah. The, and it's like, and you kind of go like, because it brings up these all these things you're talking about, like you know, resilience and ingenuity, but like that juxtaposition. Like yeah. they're raising families here. Yeah. And, and were, you're all dying. <laughs> Yeah, in this story, they end up in a place in Siberia I, that I went to, uh, and the, the Yakut people are you know, were th are still thriving, still living there, uh, and and they play a big role in in rescuing these guys, um, and sharing what they have. They're great hunters, and and they live off the land, and they understand the nuances of ice and when to fish and when to hunt and when to retreat uh, to the south, and you know. It's a fascinating part of the story, actually, mm -hmm. is, the, is the people who actually live in this place that that seems to be killing uh, these uh, these white dudes, mostly white dudes. Yeah. But there are two um, Alaskan Inuit hunters who uh, are part of this expedition from the beginning, and uh, they play a big role. Uh, they're great hunters, and uh, they keep this thing going. They keep these men alive. Uh, their knowledge of 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 how to hunt this kind of landscape, this sort of permafrost um, landscape. And, uh, you know, they're hunting reindeer mainly, but also polar bear and, and walrus. And I was thinking of the, the mental side of things, right? It's like, they, I think they brought on a hundred dogs at the very beginning. When, or... no, no, not that many, about 50, about, Sorry, about 50. half that much. But um, the dogs are important. And um, don't worry, they don't, uh, they aren't eaten until 
maybe the very, 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 very bitter end. Because they're, they're working. They're part of the team. They are part of the team and they're beloved. And uh, there's one favorite dog named Snoozer. Uh, things do not go well for Snoozer in the end, I'm afraid. But um, we won't, uh, let's not go there. Uh, it's too sad. But if you're on that boat too, it's like these these two um, Alaskans are um, there to take care of the dogs too. And man, if you're not a dog person, you have 50 of them that you're living <laughs> with. They're, they're peeing and pooping on stuff. Uh, walk everybody through your latest On Desperate Ground. On Desperate Ground is um, a battle story. It's a story of the most um, the, the most epic battle of the Korean War, and uh, it's called it's the Battle of Chosin Reservoir. Um, th- you know, I, I've I've always kind of been curious about the Korean War because you know it's kind of an also ran in our in our history. Like we don't talk about it mm-hmm. that much in school. It's not studied as much. Some people don't even think it was a real war because it's been called a UN police action, or it's been called as you know perhaps. Uh, a, a civil, a civil war that the that the world kind of glommed onto. Yeah, uh, um, but they killed far, far more Americans than the global war on terror has. Absolutely, and and more more people uh, per per year than the Vietnam War. Um, and oh, I don't uh, know, it was, it was more and a more efficient killer. Yeah, and it was it was. Uh, it was kind of a world war. It was like a world war crammed down into this one peninsula. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese, the Russians, uh, and the North Koreans versus the UN, and led by, of course, the United States. But uh, it's also, I kind of wanted to do this because it's sort of my, my parents' uh, war, war, my parents' generation war. Uh, my, my stepfather fought there. Uh, my father-in-law had Korean War orders uh, and made it as far as Japan. Um, so, you know, I just kind of want to understand what they, th- this was their conflict. Of the, uh, and I was, unfortunately was saying goodbye to some of my, uh, some, that generation, a lot of, a lot of, uh, like I lost my stepfather and lost my father-in-law a couple of years ago. So uh, that was kind of my personal motivation, just want to understand what what was this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, I think the Korean War is a very tough narrative to get your arms around. So I decided to reduce it down to something more understandable, which is one battle, you know, that has a clear beginning, middle, end. And the Battle of Chosen Reservoir is that battle. It's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a classic. It's like something out of Thucydides or, you know, Herodotus or something. It's like this, you know, this army marches up into this wilderness on the shores of a frozen lake where they are completely surrounded by 10 to 1 by this force that had secretly entered the war. I'm talking about the Chinese Red Army. And uh, the, 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 this is the first Marine Division of the United States is, is uh, you know, seemingly going to be wiped out. And it's, it's really how they uh, fought their way out of this trap. And uh, how they fought their way back to the sea. Uh, you could say it's a retreat. It's a story about a retreat. <laughs> but the, the Marines, of course, do not allow you to use the word retreat. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of euphemisms for retreat. Uh, retrograde maneuver is one I like. Oh, that's good. Uh, another one is uh, advance <clears throat> to the rear. <laughs> but uh, this is one of the, you know, this is a fighting withdrawal. This is a, they fought every step of the way to get their, to get out of this colossal, you know, I mean, there's a series of blunders that led to this. 
mainly by a, a blunders committed by a guy named General Douglas MacArthur. Um, oh, heard of that guy? Yeah, you've heard of him, and and uh, you know the Marines just can't stand MacArthur. They just to this day just hate him with such a passion. But so the first half of the book looks at all those blunders and kind of how it all happened that they were trapped and how they didn't know how could they not know that the three hundred thousand Chinese had crossed the border from North Korea. I mean from Manchuria. Um, and how how they got kind of put in this position, and then the rest is is of the book is about how they how they fought their way out. Uh, how do you of all the bazillions of ideas that flow through your head? How do you um narrow down? I mean, is is it like eventually it's like a throwing a dart at a wall and be like, I'll pick that thing, or does it become clear to you what you need to do when you're when you're doing book projects? You're like, oh, I'm gonna spend five years on. When you yeah. said the five years, that's what I'm like. Are you procrastinating for four? Being like, <laughs> what is the thing? Well, some people have said that I pick my books uh, based on interesting travel that would be required. Uh, that's why I was going to ask uh, you about travel uh, next because I was that. wondering how much you, if it's uh, 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 always places you want to go, or if you ever like, oh, that sucks. I got to go yeah. there now. Uh, th- that's not completely um, untrue. It, you know, I do, I do love to travel, and I do want to pick stories that require interesting, far-flung travel. Um, so that's true. Um, but it's also, uh, you know, it's it's a whole combination of things. I, I think I always say that it's like there's two sets of criteria or two ledgers that I use. Like one is, one is the kind of rational ledger. You know, it's like, is this a good story? Check. Is is there enough material? Check. Is, has it been written about not you know too much or not enough? Check. And you know you check all the the obvious boxes for what is will this make a good story? But then there's sort of the irrational side of it, which is does the hair on the back of your neck stand up when you think about this story? Does, mm. does it grab you? Is it exciting? Is it is it uh, you know that kind of tingling in your gut feeling that I can, I can live with this thing for five years and, um, it'll, it'll sustain me. And you got to have both of those. You got to have the rational side and the irrational side. Um, and I I guess, I I guess timing also has something to do with it. I mean, the, the, this Korean war book, uh, I thought about doing 20 years ago or 15 years ago, uh, and kind of filed it away. How did it first, like, how did the, how do you, how do you pronounce the reservoir? Chosen, Chosen Reservoir. Chosen. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah. How do you remember? How did the Chosen Reservoir or take Kit Carson or the Jeanette? Mm-hmm. Like, do you remember the first time it entered your head? Yeah. Well, uh, because I'd never heard of it before, uh, and I was signing books. My first book, Ghost Soldiers, uh, which is about some really tough dudes, the, the the veterans of the Bataan Death March. You don't, you can't imagine people tougher than Bataan Death March guys. But as I'm signing this book, this gentleman comes up uh, who was a Korean war vet. And he says like, yeah, these Bataan guys are a bunch of wussies. You know, you should do a book on the, on the reservoir. And I'm like, what? What's the reservoir? I, hey, tell me more. And he's like, well, you know, here's my card. And he put his, his card down and the, it said the chosen few that's the name of their organization oh. they called themselves the chosen few and phil i noticed, like that little play on words yeah and uh phil would like that uh <laughs> and he, i noticed that he was missing his fingertips oh a- and it turned out that he had lost his 
fingertips in the battle. Uh, to cold. I, I forgot to mention that, that this battle was fought in 35 below zero weather and uh, that it was the third combatant, really. You know, it was the Chinese, the Americans, and Old Man Winter. Mm -hmm. uh, it was fought in late November, early December of 1950. And uh, it made an impression on me. You know, I was like, yeah, tell me more. And I, I took his card and I filed it away and began to read about it. But I think it took me about 15 years before I started really deciding this is the time to write that book. But in the meantime, you're, just, you're probably just like reading books and... You know, like, or let me, let me ask this question another way at this moment, sitting here right now, um, how many contenders are floating around in your head? I don't know. I I got a list, uh, of four, maybe 10 or 10 or 20 book ideas that, okay. that I might, and you're be not going to get to them all. Oh, I'm not going to get to You're them all. like, it's a race against the clock at a point, right? It's a right race against the clock. It's also a race against, um, I mean, I don't know about the future of, publishing, you know, like, I don't know if people are going to be reading 20 years from now, <laughs> at least not in the way that we think of, of mm -hmm. ink and glue and paper and, uh, you know, uh, the old fashioned books that, you know, I love to just read a good book. And, and, uh, you know, now it's, it's a different kind of reading public. Yeah, but, you know? but the, but the, you see, I'm getting back to, I got to ask you this and I got to go back to another question, but the economics, if people are reading on their phone, like that doesn't affect your economics, right? I mean, too terribly. No, it's not. It's not too terribly. But or do you I mean do, will they want to uh, sit down and live uh, with uh, live with five hundred pages? Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, yeah. I have kids, uh, as do you, and my kids. You know, attention span sometimes is lacking. You know, they they like things quick. Mm -hmm. They like movies quicker. They like they like you know just uh, you know. They want action, you know, and some of these books take a long time to set up and, you know, I mean, they're long books and, you know, I just, I don't know, generational, the generational reading, reading habits is one, one factor in all this. Most of the people who read my books are a little bit older. Um, is that right? You know, they're like people in their sixties, like, you know, start to really like history. I think it seems like that seems to be the turning point. Uh, because do you have to keep that in mind when you're writing? I kind of do. Do you have to be like, remember, you're writing for... <laughs> yeah. My wife was never worried when I went on book tour. You know, she's like... Because uh, <laughs> most, a lot of my readers are like, you can hear them coming before you see them. And, uh, you know, that depends generation. Um, but uh, look, I love my readers, whatever age they are. Yeah. Uh, um, and um, I do I do have younger readers too, but... Uh, I just do worry. I guess this is just getting off on a tangent, but you know what is happening in publishing and how as we're moving into the digital, mm -hmm. the digital age. Um, I also, you know, audiobooks are are going going gangbusters. Yeah, and uh, it's it's an inch. I I read one of my books um, for an audio book. I, I don't know. Did you read your uh, like American Buffalo? Did you read after ten years? Book? I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, sitting I in a studio. It, I I um I thought this this producer said it's going to be really hard because, uh, you know, your mouth and your throat and your tongue and you know it's like sitting in a studio for eight nine ten hours a day reading. He said it's going to be like digging a six foot hole in the ground with your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way it felt. That's the way it felt. But um, also, I wanted to edit, I wanted to change the book. Um, I mean, I kept saying, who wrote this crap? I, I you know, I wanted to edit my own stuff sure, for, yeah. for, for, a, for a, to, to be read aloud. 
Uh, and they said, you contractually, you cannot change a word of your own book. So, uh, you know, you just have to read exactly right? what this clown wrote. <laughs> huh. But uh, it was interesting. That's great. Um, so audiobooks are going great, though. I mean, they're selling and, and they're a bigger and bigger portion of the overall sales. Yeah, um, we just did a thing that went direct to audio and won't have a print life. No, well, that's viable. But it's it's like, did, yeah, but it's not, and it's, did different, it's it? different than the book. No, no, because it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a collection of a bunch of people telling stories about close calls, but there's sort of like a, narr- there's a narrator component to it that comes in. But yeah, it was like, I mean, you would experience it very much like a book, but it just was built. You know, you're talking about that you wrote it. If you were, if you knew you were going to read it, you might've did some things differently mm-hmm. just to have it work that way. Right. This is kind of like this project, which is called Close Calls, is just leaning into an ado- and adapting the project to be suitable to audio rather than having it be, let's take a thing that was like built for print and make it audio. Right. Like, just make it for audio. Like, make it perfect for that format. Right. Um, and yeah, and I think that that a, little, that a little bit ties into what you're saying about just trying to understand the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but you've probably learned to live with all that kind of fear because you were a magazine writer. And I, then you had to I be, was. like, nervous about how can I continue to pay the bills as a magazine writer? Yeah. Which you, is daunting. you got to evolve. And, you know, the, we're living through, I think, one of the most consequential uh, periods of, of change and transition in terms of information. And, you know, it's like the Gutenberg Bible or whatever, you know, these these moments in history that are so important to – publishing or to how information is spread around the world. Well, we're living through one of those moments now, and that's, you know, the, the digital age and everything that has come with it, with the internet. Um, so every, all writers are having to evolve with it, trying to figure out how to make a living doing this and uh, how to make their impact, you know, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting time. I think we have to look at it that way as interesting. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's just kind of scary because the writers who aren't evolving are, are suffering now. I think there's either there's two paths you can take. You can take the path of resentment and fear, or you can take the path of there's a set of things that I want to talk about, and I'll continue to talk about those things. I don't give a shit what happens. <laughs> it's like yeah, and you'll find you, you your have to like take your choice. Yeah, and you you'll know? you'll find it's your binary audience. almost. Yeah, you know you know when you were mentioning the um you had an t- interesting term for the cold um during the cre- during the battle of the chosen chosan. What I was I was like I like like chosen. Well, it's it's chosen is is how you how they say it, but and it's a complicated thing. Because I'm just gonna go with chosen. That's a Japanese word, even though oh, it's said in Korea. But go ahead. You you had an interesting term you used, which would be a third combatant, right, for the cold. Um, and there's thing like I felt really stupid not even knowing that this happened, but. To refer back to Blood and Thunder, um, I didn't know that during the Mexican-American War, I didn't realize that we actually invaded, that the U.S. Army invaded Mexico and made it all the way to Mexico City. But remember mm-hmm. you talking about like part of the strategy when someone invades Mexico is you just wait until yellow fever hits them <laughs> or malaria, I can't remember mm-hmm. what. Mm-hmm. And like let, let disease take its toll then we'll respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happened. Uh, we, there was this huge amphibious invasion of, of Veracruz, Mexico, and then they marched all the way to uh, to Mexico City and held 
Mexico City for over a year, um, occupied it. It's kind of amazing. I don't think we teach that very much. <laughs> Dude, our, I was, uh, yeah, I remember being like, how, like, how do I not know that we actually did that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We invaded their borders, you know, before they, and, you know, there's so much news now about, of course, crossing the borders. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's a murky, messy history for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, but Carson, uh, Kit Carson, um, and Blood and Thunder, uh, you know, is is so mixed up in it all because he's married to a Mexican woman, a New Mexican woman uh, from Taos, New Mexico. And uh, he, he sort of sees all sides of it. And that's why he's such an interesting cat is that, you know, he's conflicted. He's... Yeah, his first wife was a Rappaho. Yeah. Was it she Rappaho? Yes, that's they right. They had a child. They had two ch- children, actually. She died. He, like, brought his his child to be raised elsewhere. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. like the, the, in a, you think of these people like, like this, like American figure, but most of the people around him in his life wouldn't have self-identified as Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, inclu- it was, that, that idea hadn't even really taken shape where he was. Including him. I mean, he was a runaway. He, he tried to get away from America. He, he ran away on the Santa Fe trail from, uh, from Missouri and, uh, kind of never looked back, you know, he fell in love with the West. And as you mentioned, his first wife was Arapaho and he lived with her tribe and spoke her language. And we always talked about it as being his favorite, the favorite part of his life was, was those years uh, living with the Arapaho and being a mountain man. And, uh, but, you know, eventually he, after she died, he uh, married a young woman from Taos and then he started a different life. He converted to Catholicism and he spoke Spanish and in, in the house and raised their kids speaking Spanish. And, you know, he lived that life. He, he is like, you know, as you say Forrest Gump, but, you know, he just keeps, he has like cat with nine lives. He just organically morphs into the next guy and then the next guy and the next guy. And by following his, the, the trajectory of his life, you can begin to really understand all the different forces that shaped the American West. And that's that's really why I wrote it. Mm-hmm. There are uh, two things in there that, that that really strike me in a way of just like understanding American history is I talked about the the idea of like being American being kind of a flimsy notion for a lot of the um a lot of the people who are in the Southwest. Like it wasn't like clearly defined, right? It was kind of like, you know, there's this government that's far away in Mexico and they exert some level of influence on this portion. And then also there's this governor, there's this government in Washington and they're exerting some level of influence, but it all seems very abstract to try to understand like, you know, who to be with. But you even talk about when like the U S army had people who had recently emigrated to America from Europe and they're elite, they're in the U.S. Army, and their allegiance as Americans is also like fairly flimsy. And it's not a big part of the book, but you make a mention of a group of um, Irish Catholics mm-hmm. who are in the U.S. Army waging war in Mexico, and they feel conflicted between being a U.S. citizen but fighting against Catholics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And they leave the U.S. Army. Because they feel like they have like more of a sort of religious obligation to Roman Catholics. And then they leave to fight against the U.S. Army. And then the U.S. Army catches some of them and hangs mm-hmm. 50 of them at once. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you about that in history. Mm. 
Yeah, hair, yeah. like yeah. There's a painting of it in the in the book of that day when they hung those fifty people. It's like man, mm. just yeah. like a just just a, I don't know a, 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 a sort of ruthlessness that existed then. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a different, obviously a very different time, and and I think the notion of what is an American was evolving then. You know, very very much. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden. There was this Western third of the continent that was up, kind of up for grabs, uh-huh. uh, and you know I kind of describe it as the, the, one of the largest land grabs in, in 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 history. You know, like all all of that terrain about the size of continental Europe was was taken uh, in in one generation, uh, really in in a four year period um, in, in the eighteen forties. Uh, you just We'll, we'll take that. We want it all. <laughs> yeah, uh, and people in the time that were involved in it, even acknowledging yeah. that they were in a moral, they're a little bit in shaky ground. Yes. And and that's why, you, you know, people like uh, Kit Carson, uh, you, know, you know, it's like they needed folk heroes back east to sort of begin to justify this land grab. They needed great s- stories of plucky guys who were already there out west. And uh, there was all these books that came out um, that were kind of the proto-Westerns, early Westerns that were called Blood and Thunders. That's where the title of my book comes from. Blood and Thunders were these pulp Westerns. And they always had some kind of hero who often was Kit Carson. Um, kind of the, Now we're getting into the fictional Kit Carson. Um, they said he was a you know six foot eight and Aryan and blue eyed and he got all the ladies and uh, won the day and, you know, uh, that wasn't what Kit Carson was really like at all. He was like five foot four, five foot five, uh, awkward. I said he way. had a feminine voice. <laughs> hey, I don't know about that, but he had a little twinkle in his eye. He was mischievous, but he was just a not, uh, you know, he spoke seven Indian languages. He was a lifelong devoted friend to many Indian tribes. Don't get me wrong. He had an amazing life, but he wasn't this pulp hero that seemingly people back east, writers back east needed to uh, to celebrate. You know, he was this uh, kind of ornery <laughs> uh, guy who was extremely loyal. Uh, I mean, it'd be great if you could have interviewed him on your show here because, I mean, he was the ultimate meat eater, you know, like mm-hmm. he, he, he knew how to, he, he, he knew how to hunt and he knew how to fish and he knew, he, he knew how to butcher an animal and set up a camp and strike a camp and he knew when to fight and when to bluff. And, you know, he just had all this sort of panoply of skills, um, that, uh, you know, got him through a whole life, uh, living out here. And, uh, uh, but he, but he wasn't that, that, that sort of, uh, Cape Crusader mythic hero that was the, was the protagonist of these blood and thunder books back East. He did a lot of running away. <laughs> for yeah. for that to be true, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know when when to fight and when not to fight. Yeah, he he uh he he did. I mean, and that was one of his great skills was, you know, sensing the situation. There was one particular battle in the Panhandle of Texas at a place called Adobe Walls where he was completely surrounded by Comanches and uh he and a, a small army and Mostly uh, an army of of other Native American tribes, actually. Um, but he realized yeah, he fought with the Utes a lot. He fought with the Utes a lot. Like he'd bring up, they they travel with them. They they did, and they were his scouts. But um, he in that particular situation just figured out a way to get extricate 
extricate himself from it because advance uh, to the rear. It would it was it was another retreat story. I guess I'm kind of attracted to them, but uh, he lived to fight another day. He figured out that uh, you know this could have been Custer Custer times ten, you know, uh, but he he was smart enough and uh, cool under pressure enough to. To, to remove himself from that particular situation. Are you familiar with uh, that there's the first battle of adobe walls and the second battle? Yeah, there are two. There are yeah. two. Uh-huh. He, he was involved in the first one. Yeah. Did you did you visit that site? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I haven't been there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the second one was a much minor deal. It was buffalo mm. hunters, yeah. like hide hunters versus, I think, I believe the Comanche and Kiowa again. Yeah, I think so. In that yeah. same setup. How, how do you approach um, coming to a conclusion um, in your job, you got to suss through all these sources, many of which are not around today, certainly when you're talking about Kit Carson. Um, but you can very well come to a conclusion that can be refuted, uh, even the next year, right? Like we always talk about mm. advances in technology and new findings and going back and looking at that thing in the drawer with the new technology that we have to have today. It happens, go through tons of stories like that all the time. Um, but you kind of brought it up in your, um, when you were talking about James Earl Ray, right? Mm-hmm. Like you decided that, that he did it, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's a, a whole bunch of other folks out there that think that. Big conspiracy. Uh, big right. conspiracy and a bunch of other things. So, uh, I guess I'm kind of interested in, in, um, if you have a certain approach to coming to a conclusion with either a historical figure or a battle and um, if now that you you have such a, a deep, um, you know, library of books that you've written, if if you've uh, come across people who are supportive or not supportive, if you uh, if you're working on the next story because mm-hmm. you they don't like the conclusion that you came to. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, you're making a million little judgment calls all the time uh, when you write a na- piece of narrative history. You know, you are you you have to, unfortunately, and and uh, you make mistakes sometimes. And I think you know, it's certainly um, uh, it's an art, a very muddy, messy art, not a science. Um, and you have to be open minded, like that. Maybe you were wrong. Uh, you know, maybe you have to revisit a subject sometime down the line and say, I, I got that wrong. Uh, but in the end, you just gotta. Be as fair and as meticulous and uh, as, uh, you know, try as hard as you can to put yourself in those times and not judge them by, you know, today's standards uh, of of um, politics or, you know, sensibilities that we have today. Um, and uh, read as many things as you can read and, you know, try to understand the times and give as much context as possible. Um, James Ray, interestingly... Uh, you know, I did not reckon with the <laughs> the ferocity uh, of this of the conspiracy people um, when I wrote that book. Uh, you know, there there there's it's a small but very vocal group of people who who live just you know live their life around conspiracies and and it's a conspiracies or that conspiracy well that one but often it's that one is often tied to jfk and rfk at least at least those three um but you know like i knew they were out there and i knew they wouldn't like my book because i happened to have decided independently that ray pulled the trigger 
But, you know, wow, they are, they hate me. They hate my book. They, I'm the enemy. You know, they, they actually have said things like Hampton Sides is obviously a name that was invented by the CIA. Um, and, uh, you know, he's obviously... And your previous works were all part of the same scheme. Right. Like right. What they'll right. do is they'll right. establish him as a prominent author. Right, right. No, later, I, I was groomed from an early later age. later will he then... <laughs> I was groomed from an early age to write this book and... Uh, or it's just a made-up name. I'm not even... It's not even really me. It was written by some committee or something. Um, Oh, I mean, I, I'm always approached by these people who, at, at my talks uh, about about that book, uh, that, that usually they, these are they almost always have toupees, um, or you know, really bad dandruff, or you know, just something about them is off, mm-hmm. and you can tell. Oh, here he comes! Here he's gonna he's coming at me now with the. Uh, well, you're uh, not yeah. even done talking, <laughs> and you know the guy that's going to be the guy that. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like they didn't – it's not about whether they like my book or the way I wrote it or, or, or where the uh, – you know, did I use nice metaphors or something. It's that they hate my guts because I came to a conclusion they don't agree with. And so conspiracy people are – and I actually went to one of their – I went kind of undercover one time and went to one of their gatherings. Uh, During your research uh, yeah, process. Yeah, I just kind of want to understand who these folks are and, uh, you know – Everything is a conspiracy. Everything's connected. Everything, you know, is connected back to J. Edgar Hoover and and uh, the uh, world, you know, world order, you know, whatever, the black helicopters, uh, you know, no. um, and uh, 9-11 didn't really happen the way we thought it did because, you know, Bush ordered it all and, you know, he knew about it from the start. And, you know, it's like, whoa, you just take some deep dives into – into this alternative history. It's really, it's fascinating and I think ultimately kind of pathetic, but um, these these people live and breathe it. It's, it's part of their, it's a big part of their identity. You know, uh, earlier I said there was two, th- this is my last question about Kit Carson, but um, earlier I said there was two things that really stood out to me in there. Uh, one of them being, I brought up the one about the, the sort of, um, developing sense of like Americanness, you know, like people understanding what that meant and, and, um, that, that it wasn't as sort of, a, it wasn't like a, as, as, as clean as we now imagine it, like how you identify your, your national identity in those areas. But the second thing was, is, uh, how, uh, overt you mentioned earlier that he was, he wasn't responsible for, um, bringing the Navajo into reservation confinement. And that had been a vexing problem for hundreds of years, like the, the war with New Mexicans and the Navajo. And then they finally put the task, they got serious about it and put the task to Kit Carson. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about just like that, the, the way he engaged and I think you used the term uh, like total warfare, mm-hmm. scorched earth policy. Can, can you real quick walk through like what exactly that guy did to accomplish that task? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so like for, for hundreds of years, there had been this kind of low-grade war between the New Mexicans and the Diné, the Navajo, uh, where they were stealing each other's women and children and cattle and sheep. And uh, it was just horrible. It was a horrible existence on both sides. Yeah, they drew yeah. like a slave trade. A slave trade. Between the two of them. And, and you couldn't leave your house um, along the Rio Grande uh, without fear of being kidnapped and vice versa. These, these Diné would be doing their thing in places like Canyon de Chez and suddenly 
a slave raid would come from, you know, a Spanish slave raid would come and take take women and children. And uh, it was it was a horrible existence for everyone, I think. And so when the Americans showed up during the Mexican War and took over, um, they looked at this problem and began um, to figure out, you know, how do we solve it? How, how do we stop this back and forth stealing of each other's people and cattle? Um, and, you know, they they zeroed in on the Diné because they were very successful raiders. They were they were a thriving, huge uh, uh, culture to the west of the Rio Grande. Uh, they were they they were expert raiders and. Uh, they decided this is the first group we're really going to have to go after. You know, of course, the, the, the Comanches were also raiders and so were the Apache. Um, and so so there was this general, General uh, Henry Carlton, um, who – James Henry Carlton, who decided once and for all that we're going to – we're going to – we're going to – we're going to really go after the Navajo and we're going to move them to – the Pecos River, and we're going to rewire their whole society and make them stop roaming around and teach them to be Christian farmers living in like apartment buildings <laughs> and, 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 and d- dense areas uh, and, you know, make them more like us, basically. Uh, <laughs> and, and he decided, this guy, General Carlton, that Kit Carson had to, had to lead the the fight because it was going to be the culminating act of his career. And um, Carson very much did not want to do this at first. He he, he rejected overtures. He, he actually resigned from the army at one point. Uh, but in the end, he was convinced to, to do it. And how he did it, 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 you know, it was like a couple of years before Sherman's famous scorched earth campaign against the South. Uh, Carson led a scorched earth campaign against the Navajo that was every bit as brutal. Um, and the way he did it, he, he, he realized he couldn't fight the Navajo because they didn't fight in that any kind of traditional way with, with lines of, with, with uh, you know, um, you know, they, basically they scattered, you know, and uh, they, Navajo country is so conducive to scattering, you know, there's just endless canyons and caves and, um, and so Carson was frustrated. He couldn't fight them. So he decided to fight their land. He, you know, he killed every horse and every cow and every sheep. And he burned every cornfield and every peach tree. And uh, it was a war on the land. And um, yeah, I remember you talking about like chopping down thousands of orchard trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a famous part of the, the campaign in, in, into Canyon Shea, Canyon de Shea. He also like had his men guard the water sources and the salt sources. And, you know, it was just the systematic thing. And so you have this guy who very, very much didn't want to do this. He was very reluctant, but somehow once he began, he turned out to be really good at this kind of warfare. Um, and it, and it kind of went against so many of his instincts and yet he led this campaign. He, and, he he understood the landscape like no one did, though. Mm-hmm. You know, and it worked. I mean, in within a within a year, it it took about a year. They they began to starve and they began to surrender in ones and twos and then in dozens, then scores, then hundreds and hundreds and thousands. This was one of the largest tribes in the North America, and 
he brought them to their knees. And yeah, in the end, it was like they came to him. And they came to him. Yeah, it'd be like if you took a town, like if you imagine today you took a town and you came in and said like, okay, you destroy the highway coming into the town on either end, blow up all the gas stations, burn all the grocery stores, right? Then you sit back and be like, give it a minute, boys, they'll be out. Mm. And eventually the, you know, it's just like ruthless, And then they were marched on this kind of thing that's often compared to the Trail of Tears of the Cherokee, but they were marched to this place on the Pecos and they tried to make it work, but but it was so alien. It was such an alien environment to the Navajo, you know, just just in terms of geography, and uh, but also in terms of you know, it's like there was just nothing recognizable out there. It was like mesquite and you know, just this kind of semi-arid desert without all of those amazing rock formations that the the the, the Dene are you know we. We think of the Diné country and we think of Shiprock and Monument Valley and all these amazing places. That This was just this flat, boring swatch of land on the Pecos. And, and it turned out there wasn't enough firewood to keep them warm. There wasn't enough uh, clean water for them to drink. And, uh, and they didn't want to be congested in a tight little area. Um, and they just – it was like they suffered – the tribe suffered a – psychological breakdown. You know, it was like they wouldn't plant. They they gave up. They were morose and uh, diseases took over. And uh, a third of the Navajo died in, in a few short years. And uh, Carson understood this wasn't working. Um, General Carlton refused to admit that. Uh, and finally, it took General Sherman. <laughs> After the Civil War, General Sherman came all the way to the Pecos and saw what was going on and realized that this huge experiment had failed. And he eventually sent them back to Navajo country. And this is one of the very few examples where people were, you know, a tribe was removed from its homeland, but then returned to their homeland. Uh, Somewhat bittersweet, um, somewhat happy ending for the the Navajo after all this tragedy that they were actually allowed to go home. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort. 
Meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break-in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili, who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable. And I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacova's store. Have a complimentary drink and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. This show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stressors. Big ones, little ones. When you keep these things bottled up, it can start to affect you in a very negative way. Well, therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Like, figure it out. That means figure it out with someone who's impartial, who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no there's no such thing. It's like, you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind, okay? Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash meat eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash meat eater. When you're a... Uh looking at your book subjects and thinking about what you're going to do. Uh, you were talking about things, having things that you need to like check, you know, sort of the, I don't know. I can't remember what term mm. you use, but there's sort of the. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's got to have good characters. It's have good plot, good structure, you know, all the things that a good story needs to have. Do you, um, is death like death's a big part of like misery and death. <laughs> <laughs> Do, are you are you aware of that component, or is that just sort of like uh that just happens? Yeah. Well, I mean, do you go like it has to have it has to be about life and death? I suppose. I mean, I I I don't think that I'm uh you know uh, gratuitously de- depressed or looking for uh, j- depressed subjects just just for the sake of of of, of make of you know making people um uh, you know down <laughs> you know but i i do think that you do have to have highs and lows and you, a good narrative needs to have high stakes and it needs to you know you need to care about their the character's fate uh whether they're going to live or die whether they're going to survive uh and um uh yeah i i think a good narrative has history has to has to have that component um your your if, fellow santa fan uh cormac mccarthy talks about you know if it's, uh, this is i'm paraphrasing but something to the effect of it you know if it's not about death mm-hmm. it's not important mm-hmm. it's about how you how people face death and how they get through an ordeal and and how they um you know all the combination of traits that they summon to to survive uh 
an extreme situation. I guess that's a theme that runs through almost all my books. Um, for some reason, it just is a theme I keep returning to. And the truth is, you know, like a story in, where, in which everybody's happy and everything goes well and there is no adversity and, and no one dies is rarely a good story. I'm sorry. Uh, sometimes yeah, perhaps Yeah, what's the number one bestseller of the <laughs> everybody had everything they needed yeah. and lived happily ever after. And, and we started at a spot where they were still happy. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of stories that don't involve a lot of death. I guess like a, a political writer mm -hmm. um, is writing about, right, I don't know, if you're reporting on a campaign. Yeah, they uh, just stop before they get there. Like, yeah. We know this will eventually have this implication. Yeah, like eventually these people will all be dead, you know. <laughs> Tell us about uh, tell us about how you got on to um, how you got on to Captain Cook. Like, what? Like, how did that wind up grabbing you? Well, um, I, I uh, I've been thinking about him for a long time because of that uh, in the Kingdom of Ice story, which is you know set in Alaska and and, and Siberia, and the only other person who really tried to do what the Jeanette did was Captain Cook. Um, Captain Cook charted the entire coast of Alaska and uh, on his third voyage. And, you know, he's mostly associated with the South Seas, but Captain Cook was all over Alaska. Yeah, like, um, and they, like, well, we had our little thing where we kept going past where he died, mm -hmm. fishing Wahoo. In Hawaii. Uh -huh. Yeah, so then I got to reading that night. We'd get done fishing. I'd go read about Captain Cook a little bit. But um, almost seems like, almost like casually moving between, Ala like, He'd go to Alaska, then wind up out in the South Pacific, then back to Alaska, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Which, yeah. interestingly enough, is what a ton of people in Alaska and Hawaii do <laughs> I today. Know, every oh, year. Yeah. There is such a strong connection between those two places. That's, that's it's true. crazy. Yeah, it's funny. My brother, my, my brother lives in Alaska, and he's like, you know how it was, like, because we grew up in Michigan. He goes, you know how it is with Michigan people in Florida? <laughs> he goes, in Alaska, <laughs> that's Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, I, part somewhat facetiously, my wife said that, uh, you know, it was like, you do all these books, like you did this book that's set in Siberia and you did a book set in this kind of remote part of the Philippines. And, you know, <laughs> what, why don't you pick a book that involves travel to places I would like to go to? Yeah. Uh, and, and we go together. And, um, some tropical I, so fruit. She, she was kind of kidding, but, uh, she was not really kidding. And I said, well, I've kind of fished out the old notes from previous book ideas. And I said, well, how about Captain Cook? Um, uh, she's like, well, where does that involve going to? And I said, well, you know, um, Tahiti, <laughs> French Polynesia, uh, you know, Tonga, uh, uh, New Zealand, um, Alaska, uh, lots of other places. She's like, Okay, bingo. That's it. That's the one. But but you know, I started looking at Kit Carson, and I realized. I mean, um, uh, Captain Cook's story. Um, Captain Cook is a very controversial cat, just like Kit Carson. And, and and you know, in terms of we were talking earlier of statues coming down and people um, uh, reassessing his legacy or something like that. Mm -hmm. And to me, that made him more interesting. Like whenever whenever a, a historical subject has a pulse and has a controversy surrounding it. it all all the much better better you know like so you're like you're well, aware of whatever if you <laughs> if you humanize him mm -hmm. you're aware that you will be criticized yeah and then uh, you know i th but that's what also will bring people to the book i think you know yeah, you give it a pulse you know yeah. does that uh, like does it change the lens you're looking at like are you looking at him 
you know, through a lens you would have looked at him 20 years ago? Or are you like, I ought to be thinking about what he did right here a different way? Yeah, I don't think a historian can help, you know, that filter, you know, you have to be aware of your time. And I'm sure that, like, for example, Blood and Thunder, if I were writing Blood and Thunder today, I would write it differently. I, I can't help it. Times I've evolved. Yeah, We've all changed. But I don't think, well, listen. I think you allowed a lot of people in that book, you allowed a lot of people their humanity. And you mostly, when in that book, when you condemn someone for being inept, it's mostly that they were regarded as inept by their peers in their own time. Mm-hmm. You're not, yeah. you don't, like, I'm sure you do. Like, you can't not look at it from now. Mm-hmm. But um, the people that were assholes did things that were often recognized as assholish and incompetent. Yeah, by their own people. Yeah, like yeah. You, you really do it, like in that project, did a very good job of helping people understand what was happening at a time. Well, and thank and, you. And, 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 and I, I think I, that, I, like, I don't know how, and I, I would guess that if you if you take on a cook, you're going to be like, okay, listen, at the time, this is shit that was going on. <laughs> right, right. You know, yeah. and, and let's just talk about what happened at the time and what people felt at the time. And then you can now go and interpret that. But like at the yeah. moment, this is what the world looked like. Right. Uh, and the other problem with with uh, Captain Cook is his story. It, you know, he had three voyages. Each one was every bit as big as the other one. They're, they're just all very consequential and sprawling. And I realized I couldn't. I couldn't do like a big biography of Captain Cook. That's not what I wanted to do. I had decided, and my wife actually was was the one who said, you got to pick one voyage. And I decided I'm going to focus on the third voyage uh, because for a lot of different reasons, but it has this amazing murder story <laughs> in the middle of it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I can see why you go with And not only that, but it also happens, you know, it's it's the most American and I'm an American writer. Uh, this is the most American of the three voyages because it it happens in July. It starts in July of 1776. Hmm. It happens I didn't realize during that. the American well. Revolution. Uh, he discovers or rediscovers Hawaii. He charts the coast of Alaska, and he um, after he dies, the voyage uh, ends up in the hands of a Virginian. Virginia-born American guy named John Gore, who who captains the vessel's uh, home. So it's it's an American story in a lot of ways, um, and so that's that's one part of it. The other part of it is um, there's something wrong with Captain Cook on the third voyage. All these scholars and all the kind of Cook nerds out there are trying to figure out what's wrong with him psychologically. Psychologically, huh. he, he's cruel. He's he's using the lash. He's being very cruel to his own people. He's cruel to the indigenous people he encounters in ways that were not true. How long had he been? How long had he been at it by this point? And how old well, was he? Well, see, the three voyages were. Um, you know, he'd been doing it for about twelve years, at, doing this kind of voyaging. But he'd been in the navy for a long time. He was late forties. Uh, when the expedition started, he was tired. Uh, he speculated that he had some kind of weird parasite from eating some bizarre food. You know, kind I was going to say, man, I bet he had, guys... cat, he had cat scratch fever, probably. <laughs> kind of food you guys Toxo, talk about. To- yeah, toxoplasma. <laughs> we've been uh, we've been exploring lately um, 
all these, there's latent toxoplasmosis. It's like a, a parasite. Doesn't sound good. Well, just all these links between irrational, um, reckless behavior and people who have suffered like increased um, entrepreneurship, increased auto accidents mm-hmm. with people who suffer from toxoplasmosis. So the minute you said that he was he was be- behaving erratically, that's where my mind went. <laughs> well, and, and interesting, Cook, uh, one of his attributes, everyone talks about it, is that he would eat anything. And he would get, you know, wh- whatever culture he was encountering, he would, he would, he would break bread with them and eat whatever they're eating. Okay. And, and a lot of his officers would go, God, I'm not eating that thing, whatever, whatever it is, uh, the kind of food you guys eat routinely. Uh, he, 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 lo- he had an iron stomach and he would eat anything, but apparently something got him, whatever it was, I guess we'll never know. Like it was pronounced enough that people wonder if he didn't, it, it, it's beyond a bad mood. Right. No, every, every his officers wrote about it, you know mm. all the all the the serious Cook scholars, you know from the eighteen hundreds on wrote about it. Something was wrong on the third voyage, and um, and the old standby of syphilis isn't cutting up. Probably not because uh, you know, I mean, I'm still open minded to this, but uh, I think um, everyone says that he he never got it on. With, with any of the native Wasn't a women, all, I mean, believe me, all his men were, <laughs> and that's another issue that was going on. They were spreading syphilis all over the South Seas, um, and it was it was sad. It was pitiful what was happening. But but Cook was married and uh, apparently was loyal to his wife and uh, didn't partake. Um, I'm still looking for evidence to the contrary, but um, apparently. Um, he, he well, I, I suppose he could have had syphilis, you know, prior to even being married. Um, you know, syphilis is a very weird disease <laughs> and uh, manifests itself in a lot of different ways. But um, uh, no, syphilis usually is not one of the ones uh, that that is, you know, listed as one of the culprits here. But anyway, something's going on with Cook. So that makes it interesting, kind of creates a little bit of a mystery uh, to the story uh, as he moves through his voyage. And when he, by the time he gets to Hawaii, um, he he... He's not his usual prudent self who knows how to negotiate and, you know, he he pisses off a lot of people on the big island and, uh, you know, ultimately um, it leads to this kind of passion play on the shores of the big island where, uh, you know, that's been dissected by a lot of different people, including the Hawaiians. And this is the other part. Yeah, of, lay, lay out a rough sketch of what happened that day. I, I want to know because I looked at the spot. Yeah, well um, – so, uh, the Hawaiians, I have to go back a little bit because, so he had been on the big Island for a number of weeks and had been treated like a King had been treated almost like a deity. In fact, that's, that's a whole nother issue is that perhaps the Hawaiians thought he was this God named Lano. Um, well, is that, is that, can you, can you speak about that for a second? Is that connected to that? The, the the way he approached the island and then sailed around yes. the island a couple times and yeah he, it sort of fulfilled a prophecy in some weird way <laughs> yes exactly he sailed he sailed in a clockwise fashion around the big island and uh, there was this tradition in Hawaiian culture that Lano would come during this particular season that happened to be right when Cook arrived um, they they either treated him thought he was Lano or they thought he was a manifestation of Lano. Uh, this is endlessly debated, uh, but nonetheless, he came ashore and was treated truly like 
a god. I mean, they rolled out the red carpet and, and, and his men were treated so well uh, for about a month. And it was this huge celebration going on. That he was there. And, and, and he was there. Uh, but then when he it came time to leave and to go back to Alaska um, to pers- pursue this, the reason that he was going to Alaska was to find a passage to the Atlantic Ocean, like a Northwest Passage. Um, obviously doesn't exist uh, or didn't exist. Um, but uh, so he's going back to Alaska and about uh, two days after leaving Hawaii, uh, he encounters a storm and one of his masts snaps and he has to turn around and go back to Hawaii to find some wood uh, to, <laughs> you know, to replace his mast. Also, he I didn't know he went back on such a flimsy, not a flimsy yeah. premise, but it was yeah. like a freak. Yeah, and this time they were like, well, what are you doing here, Lano? But uh, you're not, real you're not quick, Lano. Though, real quick, though. Uh, is it plausible that he would have never gone back to Hawaii? Like, yes, very, very Like his future plans, like he may have never, he might, if that thing hadn't snapped, he might not have been there ever. I, very plausible. Yeah. And huh. that, it was, the plan was to go, go back to Alaska and try to find the Northwest he Passage and then go home after that huh. yeah. to, to England. But, uh, but when he comes back, everything's different. They, they're like, you can't be a god. You know, God's ship's masts don't break. <laughs> what are you doing here? Maybe you're just, you know, here to steal our stuff. You want our water and our wood and our women and our food, our, our hogs. And uh, they, it was pronounced. It was like a totally different environment. And uh, within a couple of days, um, some Hawaiians stole uh, one of his smaller boats, a cutter, uh, and those these cutters were a very important part of their expedition, and so he was he was angry, and he came ashore, Cook did, to try to find the boat, and in the course of things, he kidnapped. Like he physically goes on the beach. He, he physically did it. Yes, yeah. uh, just going crazy. You know, you'd think he would have gotten one of his officers or you know one of the Marines or something to go do this. He personally did it. And he kidnapped this chief, the chief of the Big Island, pretty much the highest ranking. Uh, figure, he kidnapped him and tried to force him on back on to the ship. The idea was that they would they would hold him uh, until they got their boat back. You know, he's going to take him, you know, as hostage. Uh, well, some of the warriors saw what was going on. They didn't like what was going on, and they uh, started to uh, uh, resist and wouldn't let their chief come aboard the ship. And uh, things escalated and. You know, there's certainly language differences and cultural differences and miscues and misunderstandings. And Cook fired a shot in the air, um, and then uh, he fired a shot at a native and killed a native uh, Hawaiian. And then uh, very soon thereafter, a hatchet ends up between his shoulder blades, and he drowns in about a foot of water at uh, on, hmm. on at the bay there, Kealakukia Bay where you were fishing, apparently. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a monument there still. Um, it was actually declared when a little brief area of that around where the killing happened is is still technically British soil. <laughs> what? It's a, kind of a weird thing. I, I, I don't fully understand how that's possible. But uh, it's, you know, a lot of people go there. It's a monument to to what happened, but also, you know, the British presence. You know, it used to be a British... Possession, the Sandwich mm-hmm. Islands, it was called. Um, the, and so it's kind of a... You know, I've, I've been reading history stuff for a long time. I never, I didn't know that the Sandwich Islands were Hawaii, and I 
I only, yeah, I remember like putting it together like, oh shit, that's what that is. Well, Cook named him that because um, the great, uh, the, the great uh, advocate for all of his explorations was the, the first Lord of the Admiralty, Lord Sandwich. Uh, and Lord Sandwich was the inventor of the sandwich. The Earl of Sandwich, right? He was real busy all the time and he didn't have time to eat. So he just took two pieces of bread and put a piece of beef between them and Stuck it in his mouth and <laughs> became known as the sandwich. I'm not kidding, um, but anyway, um, that's that's the book I'm writing now, and it's uh, about two thirds, almost three quarters done. Probably come out late next year. Tell me about the character. Is the it, it, look? Explain what's going on with your with your story you have about the guy Mai. Mm-hmm. Okay, is that part of? That's not part of the book, right? <laughs> it is part of the book. Okay, it, it's just kind of like an early uh, excerpt from the book, uh, but also turned into its own thing. It's it's a kind of a story that I've carved out of the book. Um, and uh, it's just recently been published by Scribd Originals, which is a, a new new thing. It's kind of an interesting long-form digital deal that uh, that uh, I, I've just discovered. And I love, I love doing this piece for them. Um, so the piece is called The Exotic, and it, it's about this young man named Mai who... Uh, came to England as part of Cook's second voyage and was the first Polynesian ever to arrive on um, on English sh- shores. He was you know, he, Cook he, took he, him. Yes. He, he was he was a Tahitian man, a young okay. man who became this uh, cause celeb in in England. He he just took that country by storm. They loved him. And uh, it's really about his two years in England and how this noble savage, as they called him, um, kind of won over the nation and the leading thinkers and writers and politicians. He met the king of England uh, and he was vaccinated. Uh, that This new thing called a vaccination of for smallpox. Um, oh, vaccinations were new? Yeah, this was, at least the procedure for smallpox was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was still a little risky. It was still a little experimental. But um, unfortunately, what would happen is the English would bring, it, it, up to that point, it had been uh, Native Americans and Eskimos, uh, Inuit. They'd bring them to London. They want to show them off, parade them around, you know, make impress upon them how powerful England was. But they were also genuinely curious about these people um, and how they would do and how they would fare in a big city. But almost invariably, they would die uh, of smallpox. Yeah. It was almost always smallpox. Well, when Mai got there, the King of England, King George III, said, we got to get this guy vaccinated. And uh, they did. And it was successful. And because of that, he lived for this two years. He was healthy. The the ladies uh, kind of fell in love with him. Is that um, right? Huh. He... Ended up being this, um, he, they, he, like, he became a gentleman, an English gentleman. He hunted, he, he uh, uh, learned to play chess and backgammon and he went to all the balls and dances and really? the sal- salons and, yeah. you know, but people, it was kind of a mixture of like, they were genuinely fascinated by him, but they also were studying him, you know, like yeah. to see, is he really the noble savage? And uh, you well, know, he became a traveling uh, chef too, right? <laughs> he also turned out this guy Mai brought barbecue to England uh, because at one point, at one of the estates where he had been hunting, um, one of the lords said, "Well, why don't we hear that you cook in this special way down in Polynesia? You know, perhaps you could cook these fowl that they had just shot." Um, in the Polynesian way. And he said, well, I would love to. And it, it, he turned out to be a great cook. You know, you 
you dig a hole in the ground and you you know you cook cook it in in uh, the Polynesian way it took I mean, many hours, uh, slow and low, you know, lots of smoke. And uh, he, they, they just loved it. They loved it so much that everywhere he went, they asked him to cook for them. He became this kind of celebrity chef, you know. Well, but was he, was he in some way treated as an equal or was it always sort of understood that he was uh, like not quite European? Yeah. Uh, a mixture. I mean, I think a lot of his uh, mates on the ship that he had sailed with uh, almost viewed him as an equal because he he, he acquitted himself very well in, in, on on the ship. He was a great fisherman. He was he was a great uh, just someone who understood the ocean. They, you know, Polynesians are just excellent navigators, and you know, I think he was treated quite equally, surprisingly so, on the ship. But by the time he got to England, I think there was this mixture of like, yeah, you're fascinating, you're interesting, you're a prince of some sort, but you're still you're still a person of color. You mm-hmm. know, there, you can't you can't divorce yourself from the racial views of that time. Um, they, you know, there was a patronizing quality to the yeah. way they treated him. There's no way to avoid saying that. But but overall, I think they did about as they treated him about as well as they could possibly do. But and one of the reasons they did it, there was a kind of a colonial competitive layer to this, which is that the English really wanted to take over Tahiti and they wanted to make sure the French didn't and the Spanish didn't. So they wanted to treat this guy like an envoy, treat, make him you know happy with oh, England yeah. uh, so that they would return him. And that's the second part of the story is he goes back to Tahiti on Captain Cook's third voyage. And he has returned to Tahiti with this experience that he's had, this excellent adventure that he's been on. And he's returned with all these possessions that are so alien to the Tahitians. He's got horses, he's, he's got goats, he's got sheep, he's got a suit of armor. <laughs> he's got all these guns. And, you know, muskets and he's got uh, gunpowder and uh, knives and swords and all this metal. I mean, they had never seen metal before uh, the Europeans had arrived. And it sets in motion this, you know, all these jealousies and, you know, people are trying to figure out who is this guy? My, he's not actually from a chiefly class. He's actually from a kind of a... uh, Landless, he's a nobody basically, but he suddenly is a nobody. Now he thinks he's big shit. He thinks he's big stuff and he's got all this, all these belongings, more than any chief. Uh (laughs) It just drives people crazy. And it's, it's really about how he returns. And, and I forgot to mention the whole reason he got on board Cook's second voyage to go to England. Really the only reason was because he wanted guns. He wanted to go to war against the people of Bora Bora, which was, this is a long, old, festering kind of Hatfield and McCoy situation back, back home that he wanted to, he wanted guns so that he could kick ass against the Bora Borans. And, and in the end, he ultimately does that. Uh, he fights a battle against them with these new things called guns <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and wins the battle. Uh, so uh, very interesting. Uh, arc to his story. And I decided to kind of carve it out of the, the bigger book and turn it into a, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like a, a novella length story. But it'll go back into the big book. It'll go back into the big book with slight, with some differences and yeah. changing it up a little bit, but yep. So with your work, uh, 
do you always are all your stories optioned out for films? Let's see. Well, yeah, all of them have been. Uh, very few of them have gotten made. Um, Ghost Soldiers was turned into a movie called The Great Raid mm -hmm. that was made by a really nice man named uh, Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> he bought my first book. A wonderful guy. Oh, yeah. Is that right? No, my wife used to work for him. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Nice, she's nice got guy. Some great, she's got great Harvey stories. <laughs> I bet she does. She's got some doozies. Oh, wow. Well, anyway, it was, it was made um, into a movie by Miramax. And uh, it wasn't great. <laughs> Didn't do particularly well commercially. Or Were you happy with it? I was happy with the historical accuracy of it, but uh, it just didn't work. You know, I was there were some casting problems. I think maybe, maybe they got the wrong director or something. Something about it wasn't quite right. It it had um, James Franco, uh, and, mm -hmm. it, and it had uh, uh, actually a, an excellent cast, um, but it somehow in the end, they it just didn't work. Uh, Did you get a weigh in on the historical accuracy of of the actual film? Uh, yes, yes, and I mean they actually wanted me to like it. They wanted me to vet it, and they actually flew me to the set, which unfortunately it wasn't filmed in the Philippines, which is where it needed to be. It was mm. filmed in Australia, hmm. so I went to Australia and I went to the set, and they happened to be fighting that night. You know, it was night night filming, and there was explosions and grenades and flares and all this stuff going on, and all of a sudden, this kangaroo, terrified, <laughs> hops across the camera uh, in front of the camera, and the director has to say, you know, cut, because you know, there weren't any kangaroos in the Philippines. Um, but, uh, but you know, it was, it was, it, it, you know, the, I, I like I say, I was happy with the historical accuracy in the end. Mm -hmm. They listened to me, and they, they tried, and it was a decent uh, movie. I call it the perfectly good raid. Not the great, right? <laughs> uh, but um, you know, I went to in the Philippines. I went to where? Where's the? There's a Bataan Memorial. I can't remember where I went, but I went yep. to the, in the Philippines too. Oh, the, you did? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a huge event still, yeah. uh, uh, memorialized, and uh, it would have been cool to film it there, man. Yeah, it would have been. It would have been amazing, and that's that. That was one of the weaknesses I think of the film is that you can just somehow tell it's not the Philippines. Yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, other stuff has been optioned. Um, the most interesting thing is Blood and Thunder. I mean, there's just something about that book that people have just constantly – it's like when one group tries to make it and fails, then another group comes on board. And, you know, I think it's too big and sprawling and ultimately controversial a story for people to figure out how to yeah. crack it. It's um, like how you really can't do um, – and no one – like no one's really done – uh, like Lewis and Clark expedition, right? Like you can't. You're right. You, you yeah, can't. It's, it's just. I think. It, I think it's. I guarantee right now someone's working on that some bitch. Yeah, always. And, some, it, it, and it won't work out. <laughs> undaunted courage has probably been optioned twenty times. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could see like how you'd have to. Yeah, you'd have to find for kick cars. You have to find some like micro type event. You know. Yeah, I think you have to, or or make it sprawl into a series, which is the group that's doing it, trying to do it now, is is the same people who did Game of Thrones. <laughs> you it. can imagine that. Uh, just take out the dragons, and and uh, you know, turn it into it's like the, this story of all these kingdoms all fighting over the same, yep. you know, uh, trying to trying to you know su survive uh, this, you know. It, it's it's a very similar story, actually. Um, the group that's trying to do it now is, is 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 interesting. But at first, the first person who optioned it was Spielberg. Tried to make it into a movie, it didn't work for him. 
And then it was Robert Redford, and, and then it was Ridley Scott. Uh, Jeez, you know, man, some so big players. Pretty cool. I Every time I get very excited, and then, uh, of course, it just somehow didn't work in the end. So uh, we'll see what this new group is able to do. It'll be interesting to see. You know, the first meeting I had with anyone around, like, television and film and stuff, uh, the first serious meeting I had was around, like, having a project of mine options. And I always remember uh, the woman's name was Gloria. We're sitting in a room like this, a bunch of people. And she said, first off, I just want to say that um, nothing ever gets done. It's impossible. <laughs> With that, let's get started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I couldn't figure out why when the Oscars happen, you know, and somebody wins and there's just all this exaggerated excitement, like, oh, gosh, you know, like, it's so exciting. And they're just freaking out on stage. I always thought it was because they were just incredibly self-obsessed, narcissistic people, which they are. But the reason they're that way is because it was truly a miracle mm -hmm. that the thing got made and that it was good and that it actually won an award. I mean, it's like there's so many reasons why films fail, especially films about, con you know, complicated historical subjects. Yeah. Um, I think I've mentioned this quote in the past, but who, who's the, you know, John LaCarre, is that how he says the, the intrigue, like espionage right. writer? Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. He described having his books turned into movies. He described it as watching an oxen turned into a bullion cube. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, well, they always say that, uh, and I think it was Hemingway who said it, that you're supposed to, the writer of the book is supposed to drive to the California-Nevada border uh, in the middle of the night, and the Hollywood guys show up on the California side, and you, you go into your trunk and you hurl your manuscript over the border, and then they, they go to their trunk, and they hurl the money at you, and then the two cars just turn around and drive away, and they never yeah. never meet. Uh, it never happens. That's probably the no. smartest way to do it, because it would be a lot less heartache and uh, a lot less uh, frustration. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, maybe it'll be a big Captain Cook blockbuster. Hey, hey, real quick, when, when, you're, when this does happen, um, who's gonna, who should play Captain Cook? Just give us an idea. Ooh, who should play Captain Cook? feeling like Cook? Nick Cagey to you? <laughs> <laughs> like, who's Captain Cook, man? How old was he when you died? Uh, he was 50, 40, 49 or 50. I guess I should know that off the top of my head, but I don't. Hmm. I haven't gotten to that part yet. Yeah, who should play uh, Captain Cook, man? Um, that's a very good Jeff question. Jeff Bridges is too old. Yeah. He was a very tall um, and very severe looking guy um, with an intense gaze, a very large nose. <laughs> Um, Rick Moranis uh, is out. Uh, <laughs> Rick Moranis is not going to do it. That's a very good question. I haven't thought of that. But uh, and in fact, that's another one that has not been done. You'd think there'd be a lot of cook movies out there. Mm -hmm. There really aren't. Hasn't been done, right? Hasn't been done. I don't know. I think it's maybe way back. Yeah, in I'm the sure old black and white around movie it, yeah. days. But yeah. So when can people when can see, people see your new book come out? The the one on cooking. Yeah, you haven't even finished it yet. But uh, I mean, it'll be a while, right? It'll be late. At the, at the very earliest, it'll be the end of next year, around Christmas time. And uh, the tentative title is The Resolution, which was the name of his ship, The Resolution. Um, man, the British knew how to name ships. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. The Endeavor, Discovery, you know, uh, and this and this one, you know, the, the Resolution, which has got so many layers of meaning, including 
the resolution of his story, his life story. Oh, that's uh, a good point, man. So that's I'm my gonna read that title. son of a bitch when that comes out, man. Oh, well, yeah, maybe be, maybe you'll uh, invite me back on here, and we'll talk. I'm gonna be like it. those people that when uh, the new Harry Potter book was coming out, they like line up at the bookstore. I'm gonna be out waiting to get that book. Oh, good. Because I need to find out. Yeah. Did they add them? Or did they not add them? <laughs> well, <And> we, I know. <laughs> we will. I mean, because I am from Memphis, and I, you know, we consider ourselves the barbecue capital of the world. We, you know, we, we probably will have some barbecue recipes in the back. You spend of the book. some time on yeah. that. Yeah, you know, like dry rub of European, you know, or, or you know, different recipes. Um, it's it's you know the the, the Hawaiians insist that he was not actually eaten, but he was in fact um, he in fact was dismembered and. Cooked, baked, in an hmm. uh, and, and uh, uh, when his remains were presented to the uh, to the English, uh, who were still waiting in that bay, waiting for something, uh, they they only they they brought him a thigh bone and a, part of his hand and uh, some of his scalp and and his hat, and so Is naturally, right? the, so naturally the British thought, well, may, they must have eaten him. Uh, and they just said, you guys don't have to worry about that parasite anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we cooked it. Uh, well, uh, anyway. You remember uh, Nathaniel Philbrick's uh, In the Heart of the Sea? Yes. So the tra- story of the tragedy of the whale ship Essex and in right. the book, um, you know, they get to eat each other. And then there's a part of the book later where, I, I don't know if it's like apocryphal story or not, but there's a part of the book later where someone meets a survivor of the whale ship Essex and he says, like, hey, did you know Bill Johnson? Supposedly the guy says, no, I had him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> well. Well, th- thanks for coming on, man. Um, um, I'm looking forward to your, I, see, I got to go, I got to read your whole damn canon, man, your whole damn library. Well, uh, please do. And uh, keep talking about it on your show. We'll, uh, well, we, we, it's we, like, it's, yeah. Um, it's just such well-researched unbullshitty history that like has all like this has like the weird parts, man, that you didn't know. Mm-hmm. You got like a good ear for the weird. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and you wedge it in where it doesn't just feel like you're being, um, you wedge it in where it doesn't smell like someone just trying to wedge weird stuff in. Like it, it still, you find a way to like make it fit, you know, but you got an ear for the strange. Well, thank you. I, I, I'll take that as a compliment. It is a compliment. Uh, <laughs> it's the highest compliment. Uh, maybe it's just that I'm a little strange. And I, I've, I do think that it's true that, you know, uh, history is so much more interesting uh, than, than we were taught in school. You know, like there are these just undercurrents and these bizarre facts and little trip, little trick doors and, and interconnections uh, that um, we li- somehow missed Mm-hmm. In, in history class. Um, yeah, because history class, for. you couldn't spend an entire semester on a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you just have to gloss over and it takes on this way that just feels not personal. All right. True, so true. Well, good luck finishing your book. Thank you. Thank you. I got to probably, I should be working on it right now. I'm a little behind. COVID has kind of slowed me down a little bit. Uh, I don't mean that I had COVID. I just mean I couldn't do a lot of the research. Have you got uh, a lot of your travel done now? A lot of it. I still got a lot more to go, though. Um, and, you know, I may not get to some of the places, which kind of just drives me nuts. But, uh, I, yeah, you just can't go to all the places where Cook went, even on just this one voyage. Did uh, you go hang out in Cook Inlet in Alaska? Uh, I, I've been there before, but uh, I need I need to go back. I need to go back. So um, 
And you've got you you got a connection to Alaska, don't you? Have yeah. a uh, my brother's been there decades now, you know? uh, and you have some, some sort of shack up there, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah we have a place up there. Yeah, well, um, he lives on Cook Inlet, meaning lives mm-hmm. on Anchorage, but mm-hmm. our fish shacks far south of there. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, thanks again. Would love to have you back on, but yeah, man, I highly just really highly recommend um, the, like your books and the the kind the kind of history you do, which is just so illuminating, man. It just helps you really understand why you know why america or you know why things look the way they look and why we remember things the way we remember them and 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 what sacrifices were made by people well thank you man it's been a pleasure enjoyed it. it This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.